Well, it's definitely a pleasure to be back here at Harvard. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, a bunch of the leading cyber people, cyber theorists, lawyers, practitioners from around the world were actually in Cambridge this week for a conference, and I participated in that, uh, about cyber norms. And we're looking at it from the private sector, the national security sector, the privacy, the legal, the military, really looking at the full panoply of issues uh, from a normative perspective. So that's what has a lot of us in town. Uh, pleased to come over here and share some of the thoughts from my perspective. And I'm going to go through a briefing that I originally prepared for the George Marshall Center in Garmisch, Germany, uh, where I spoke to about 80 military officers, senior military officers from 49 countries. Welcome, sir. A college and law school classmate who we've had the pleasure of working with, Juan Zarate. Deputy National Security Advisor at one point, who I had the pleasure of being an Intel Fellow for. Uh, but I want to talk through some of the issues that we're dealing with. How many of you are with the law school? Law students, lawyers, etc. Who isn't? And give me a sense of what your backgrounds are. Are you from the business school? Are you technologists, ma'am? Awesome. OK, so not lawyer per se, but still in that realm. Awesome. Anybody else? Yeah. We're small enough. I'm going to keep this informal. Okay. Awesome. Now this, this is the fun part of academia. All right. Uh, I'll be getting somewhat technical in places. I'll be getting legalese in places. I'll be getting alphabet soup military talk in places. If you say something that doesn't register, raise your hand so we don't go five minutes past with you not understanding what I'm saying. Uh, next question. Who has ever heard of the National Intelligence Council in the United States government? OK, a few hands. We are a statutory strategic think tank. We used to be housed at CIA. We are now under the rubric of the Office of Director of National Intelligence. And we are responsible for producing things called National Intelligence Estimates along with other products in the service of the White House, particularly the National Security Council. We also respond to questions from and testify to Congress. And we produce other publications, depending on classification, that go to a wide range of readers, largely in the executive branch or military. But if they're lower classification, sometimes to wider audiences across government, and even occasionally to the public, if you go to the website, you can find some of our assessments that are publicly available. Within that organization, I lead the cyber portfolio. As they indicated, five years ago, we stood it up as a separate portfolio. Uh, cyber issues had previously been done by one of my colleagues who did S&T. Why do I give you this little bit of background? It's to tell you the perspective I'm coming from. I just spent two days at a norms conference where we had world leaders on this issue talking about what they want the rules to be. Where do we want to get to? My job, unlike the policymakers in Washington who are trying to look ahead and change the future, effectuate US policy interests. My job is to tell them what's happened, who did it, what's happening, and what might happen if they took different courses of action if they're looking at weighing different policy options. So towards that end, we aim for true north, bullseye, regardless of whether it pleases the administration, regardless of whether the result pleases either side of Congress. If you give testimony on the Hill and both parties hate you, that's a good day for an intelligence officer, because it means you weren't being partisan. <laughs> uh, so 
I'm coming from that perspective of what's really happening, okay? And you can read lots of stuff in the media. Some of it's right, some of it's wrong. Um, but let's talk about where, where we see happening. I'm going to start you. I'm going to start you with what the Director of National Intelligence testified to Congress in 2015. Okay, we're talking about determinants and arms control here. This is the realism check. You're hearing lots of discussion about events at the UN. You're hearing lots of discussion about legislation. This is what we're seeing. Of course, this is an unclassified version. But you can read between the lines that we're perceiving a lot of activity, most of which is not being punished, and most of it which is being done without nation states or other actors declaring that they're the ones doing it. If any of you are into international relations theory, that is a gigantic security dilemma. You have a bunch of actors taking malicious actions against each other and not easily attributable and leading to an incredibly permissive environment. In 2016, very recently, here are the, a couple quotes we included in the testimony this year. Many actors remain undeterred from conducting reconnaissance, espionage, and even attacks in cyberspace because of the relatively low cost of entry, the perceived payoff, and the lack of significant consequences. So that's 2015 quotes. In 2016, we basically said everything you said last year is still true. But we added a little granularity in a couple places. Integrity of information. A lot of you are probably familiar with the model. Dorothy Denning originated it. Confidentiality, availability, integrity of information. Most of what's covered in the press is confidentiality, the stealing of documents or information or personal information, or the availability. This is the DDoSs or your system crashing, the power system in the Ukraine recently last December, things not working. Well, what about if you're just manipulating the data? Okay, this is where we foresee the real future of conflict to be going. We stated future cyber operations will almost certainly include an increased emphasis on changing or manipulating data to compromise its integrity to affect decision-making, reduce trust in systems, or cause adverse effects. Now maybe you're asking yourself, what kind of systems are they going to do this to? We covered that under infrastructure. Countries are becoming increasingly aware of both their own weaknesses and the asymmetric offensive opportunities presented by systemic and persistent vulnerabilities in key infrastructure sectors, including healthcare, energy, finance, telecommunications, transportation, and water. What should your takeaway from that be? It should be twofold. Number one, everything you rely upon in your daily life, as well as in business and everything the government relies on. And secondly, pretty much isn't all of that owned and operated and maintained by the private sector. And I've got another colleague who came from the conference we were at, Angela McKay from Microsoft, who looks at a lot of this from the private sector. So she may join us in the conversation as well. But if you think about it, this is a very unique national security problem it's not like being in control of your ICBM silo on an Air Force base. It's not like being in control of communications on a government compound or inside a federal building. What we rely upon and what we're all looking at as a national security problem is largely outside the physical control of the government. So how do you approach these things? And when nation states are interfacing and interacting with each other, what's really happening? We've had a really long road of dispelling a few myths about cyberspace. 
I've listed four of them here. The first one is it's not a global commons. Whether you are a political economist who's read Hardin and Ostrom and others, or whether you are an international lawyer who's read Cassese and everyone else on these issues, everything in cyberspace is man-made. And every satellite transponder, fiber optic cable, cell phone tower, smartphone, computer, whatever you're using, whatever network it's interfacing with, exists somewhere in three-dimensional space. That means that whoever built it has a financial interest in it and probably wants some sovereign state to defend its proprietary interest. And secondly, that it's existing, almost always, in some territorial jurisdiction. Where is it beyond territorial jurisdiction? In outer space or in the high seas portion of the law of the sea area, or in places like the Antarctica, okay? Everything else is subject to someone's jurisdiction. That's relevant because the global commons model just doesn't apply. It doesn't meet the criteria. Secondly, it's not a unique domain. I have a lot of friends in the military, and I understand why the US military claims it's a domain. That is useful to them for recruiting, staffing, procuring, training, the armed services who then feed into joint warfighting commands. If you're looking at it from a conflict space, you can't think about it as an independent domain because that just doesn't make sense. You are either operating in outer space, terrestrial or, or proprietary airspace, on land, or in water. So you're operating within one of the existing domains. I understand why they're recruiting and building staff with a Slightly different concept, but we analytically do not consider it such. Last, every time you hear about anything happening in cyberspace, it's an attack. Okay, those of you who are a little technical, port scans, pings, anything where someone's doing anything on your computer, even if they're just if they end up stealing a document, that's always in the news as an attack. We reserve the attack for something that is genuinely disruptive or destructive. The other stuff we call espionage. I work with a lot of the organizations who do that on behalf of the US government. There's lots of other governments that have agencies that do that. That's the compromise of the confidentiality of information. If it's left in place and the author and original user of it can still access it, we don't call that an attack. We call an attack when the data, the network, the system, or physical hardware dependent on that, like in an industrial control system scenario, is negatively affected. That's what we reserve the word attack for. And the lawyers in the room who study international Law, you'll know in the UN Charter and a lot of other documentation, there are very key words like armed attack, use of force, act of aggression. The government lawyers have endless fun working through what constitutes a technical attack and when does it apply, when do you meet the thresholds for Article 2.4, Article 51 under the Charter, or Articles 4 and 5 under the NATO Treaty. Lots and lots of debate on lexicon. I'm not going to drill down on it all here unless someone wants to now or in the Q&A, but just remember, Definitional terms matter, and we'll get to that a little, a little bit later why. Last, how many of you heard the term cyber Armageddon or cyber Pearl Harbor? Okay? What picture does the media usually conjure for you or some of the fiction novels? It's things like the east coast of the US, everything east of the Mississippi blacking out, and we're in the Middle Ages for three months, right? That's not what we analytically see happening or predict to happen. A couple reasons for that. Number one, if someone tried to do that to you or partially succeeded, you're going to be in an all-out existential war. Okay? What we see happening with the use of cyberspace internationally is for conflicts below the threshold of international armed conflict. 
If you're familiar with the UN General Assembly resolution, which is largely customary law now recognized as, about the impermissibility of intervention in the internal affairs of sovereign states, that's where we see more of the activity going on. Below the threshold of war, but where you're seeking to coercively accomplish your foreign policy objectives, and clandestinely, because the countries we see doing this aren't declaring that they're doing it. They're not doing it with the equivalent of a soldier in a uniform with a patch and dog tags, or a naval vessel with bow number on it, or an aircraft with a tail number on it. You will probably not see a US Cyber Command packet that has the .mil extension. Okay, and you won't see the equivalent of that from other governments. I am unaware of a military activity taken in cyberspace by any nation where they stamped it with, we're the ones doing this. That's very different than most other areas of military affairs. So how are nations talking about trying to limit the adverse consequences or humanitarian issues of this? There's a few different approaches. Norms of behavior, which is what the conference a few of us were at was about. Confidence building measures, international humanitarian law, laws of armed conflict in the American military parlance, internationally uh, humanitarian law. A couple of those references up there. We are currently at the point where lots of the international effort is in the norms of behavior. That's because we can't get the agreement that would be required for treaty law or binding mechanisms. We're at the point where we're trying to get voluntary norms that nation states and non-state actors will abide by because they see it in their interest and in the collective interest. The references there, the UNGGE is the UN Group of Governmental Experts. That is a group that convenes uh, roughly every other year. They've had several reports from those meetings. Uh, it's derivative of the first committee of the UN General Assembly, which is, deals with international security issues. And they had two very important reports in 2013 and 2015 where some consensus was reached on the applicability of international law to cyberspace. Didn't drill down on how it applied. That's where the international community is still discussing. But they acknowledged that the UN Charter and international law did. They acknowledged important principles like state responsibility would apply in cyberspace. They declared that actions that a nation state cannot take itself, that a sovereign can't take itself, it can't hire a proxy to do that for them. In the 2015 report, they went further and they put down some specific norms about things that should not be targeted. Things like commuter emergency response teams. Things like critical infrastructures in peacetime. They put down a couple other norms about uh, suggested assistance, mutual assistance between nations in certain cyber incidents. Confidence building measures are probably even one step lighter in that it's things you can do unilaterally to show the other side that you're not doing something malicious or that you have an interest in de-escalating potential conflicts. The abbreviations up there are the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Asian Regional Forum, Microsoft has put out a series of norms. Uh, lots of different entities are proposing normative structures for what the rules of the road in cyberspace should be. The law itself has largely been silent on this issue. Let's take the first part, the confidentiality part in cyberspace, the stealing information espionage. How many international treaties are there that discuss espionage? 
Zero. Correct. It's the second oldest profession. It's a dirty game that everyone expects everyone else to be doing. And it's actually governed by what we call municipal law. Not city, but in you know, nation state law, domestic law. And it's treated as a criminal matter by the state who feels they were a victim of it. Okay? And they may or may not choose to do that. They may choose to do other diplomatic resolutions like trading spies or doing other things. NATO CCD COE, the Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence in Tallinn, Estonia, has produced a large manual called the Tallinn Manual where a bunch of academic experts from around the world have addressed all those legal questions like what constitutes an armed attack? What are permissible responses and rules of engagement in the face of a cyber crisis? Now, this is an academic compendium. Uh, specifically, NATO CCD COE has a loose affiliation with elements of NATO. It's not an official body, so none of its actions are official NATO actions. And many NATO states, including the United States, have officially said that they do not view the Tallinn Manual as authoritative or binding on these issues. The US legal, government legal community retains the right to make those own determinations of opinion juris and carry out their own state practice. But as we all know, in the development of international law, collections of jurists, academicians who are expert in the field, slowly can nudge customary law as it develops in concert with what nation states are doing. So it's an interesting, important volume to read even though sovereign nations don't view it as dispositive or binding. And particularly, nations like Russia and China, who have a somewhat different view on the fundamental aspects of cybersecurity, uh, do not accede to many of its provisions. ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross, looks at a lot of things about uh, distinction and harm to civilians. Uh, the question of cyber weapons or malicious activities in cyberspace, are those harming just legitimate military targets, or are they harming civilian infrastructures and the civilian populace? We have things like the Geneva Conventions, which say you're supposed to be distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants. That can be very difficult in cyberspace, where your basic critical infrastructures are relied upon by both the military and the civilian populace. If that fiber optic cable is transferring military communications in a time of conflict, it is a legitimate military target. Now, do you think we have completely redundant telecommunication systems for the government, the military, and whatever you all are doing in law school or in your social life? No, it's all one. Same thing's traveling the same pipe, and that pipe is a legitimate military target. Back to where we started with these privately owned and operated networks, I was giving a speech in Washington a while back. One of my colleagues who had been in government before, now in her own private practice, Melissa Hathaway, said that the three sectors she was most concerned about were finance, energy, and telecom. You can make good arguments for other sectors, but let's just go with her proposal for the moment. I was speaking after, and I said, I won't necessarily say those are the only three we need to worry about, but I will observe none of those are owned and operated by the government. They have some regulatory aspects to them, but those are all outside the government's control. If you're telling me that's where your national security exists, What's the government supposed to do? How do we get to securing those when you're not going to be subpoenaing the network architecture so that you know where it is? Or other things like that. So it becomes a really, really complicated scenario when you're trying to ask what is a civilian target, what's a military target, what's permissible, what isn't, what is proportional, necessary, under the various aspects of the laws of armed conflict. 
So what are some of the conceptual frameworks that are being offered to think about this? You hear the terms deterrence, disarmament, arms control. This isn't dispositive. I've put them there the way I use them. But pay attention to the red words. Because you can approach cyber deterrence as a way of you're trying to limit another actor's actions. You can also approach it from trying to limit who has the capability or what capabilities they're allowed to have. You can also take sort of a reductionist and realist approach and say, I can't control the proliferation of these capabilities. I won't get sovereign nations to swear off their prerogative to have these capabilities, but I can try to encourage them to abide by some norms which limit the deleterious effects to the civilians or civilian infrastructures. If you think about it, poison gas, who's allowed to use that in wartime? No one under Hague law, okay? Nuclear weapons, who's allowed to have them in today's world under the legal structures? A serious small handful of countries. Uh, if you're a realist like me, you think it may exceed one handful, but it's not tons who have them. And you even have countries like South Africa and uh, Brazil who voluntarily chose not to have them, okay? We have yet to see any country in cyberspace say, for my individual security, I do not want to have offensive cyber capabilities. In fact, we're seeing the exact opposite. We are regularly seeing new countries declare that they're trying to develop those capabilities, that they're developing the equivalent or organizing the equivalent of a cyber command in their military the way we have one. Uh, we just heard a discussion today at our conference about some of the other countries that are developing their own administrative and military capacities to do these things. Um, under deterrence and limiting actions, there's a couple ways to think about it. I use the term second or direct and versus third and indirect. What do I mean by that? When I talk about deterrence, you're trying to get someone to not do something. So if you've harmed me before and I'm trying to respond to you in a way that you will not do the same thing again, that's second party deterrence or direct. Okay? If you want to put it in cyber event terms, the United States government has determined with high confidence that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea, was responsible for the hacking and cyber attack, and I say cyber attack because that was an attack, on Sony Pictures Entertainment. So at a policy level, the question would be, what policy response would be required such that North Korea would not do the same activity again against a U.S. entity or asset? That's second party deterrence. Third-party deterrence would be, what must the U.S. government's response be to North Korea such that no other country would do a similar action in the future against a U.S. asset or entity? There's actually a great analogy here in criminal law. You actually want the criminal penalty or sentence to be high enough to deter other individuals who aren't the original perpetrator, who you'll hopefully be incarcerating for some period of time. And you want it to be high enough in a law and economics context, because you know you're not going to catch everyone. So you need the penalty multiplied by the coefficient of the likelihood of getting caught, which will be less than 1.0, to be a high enough deterrent for people doing it again. So a couple questions I really enjoy asking in groups. It's great in a larger audience, but we can play along here. It's great in a big auditorium. Uh, and I don't want to hear any country name, and I don't want to hear any specific event. Okay, keep that all internal. How many of you think 
a nation somewhere has violated the sovereignty of another nation by doing a cyber attack on assets in another country. I think that's ever happened. Okay. No, I'm talking about attacks. Uh, we don't in the intelligence community or in the U.S. government. So I appreciate that. I think there's rampant espionage okay, everywhere all the time. For the purposes of this, we're talking attacks. Um, I don't think you're ever going to be able to successfully deter espionage. Uh, second question, whatever you were all thinking about, again, don't say it out loud, whatever you were thinking about, do you think the country that did it publicly acknowledged that they did it and took credit for it? Raise your hand if you think they publicly said, I did that. One. Okay. Third question. Whatever you were thinking about that these countries have done, which they didn't take credit for or publicly admit to doing, how many of you think they were significantly punished for whatever they did? I see one waffling, two. Okay. I offer... That is the permissive environment that we were talking about on the first slide. You don't have a credible threat out there that's deterring things. Okay? This is the realism of the National Intelligence Officer, the analyst who says, I look around the world, I read all the sources I have access to, and we're not successfully deterring currently. So if you want to get to a deterring world, that's a normative project. It's for the policymakers, it's for the technologists, it's for the theorists. How do we get there? I offer there are four required elements for a successful security architecture. Number one, it has to be transparent. People have to know what the rules are. They have to be publicly articulated. Most criminal codes are published. You know what you're allowed and not allowed to do within the community you operate within. Secondly, it needs to be universal, but not necessarily symmetric. The nuclear example we gave the Non-Proliferation Treaty, some countries have nuclear weapons, some don't. That is asymmetric. However, every single party knows whether they're in the have or the have-not bucket. Universally applicable. And, even more importantly, everyone knows which bucket everyone else is in. So there's a universal knowledge. Perfect. I'm talking about under the rules. You're, you're nodding your head no. I'm talking about under the rules. I will agree with you there may be some uncertainty at the actual technology level. But under the legal rules, it has to be universal. So everyone knows where everyone else is supposed to be. And then it's a matter of enforcing compliance if someone is playing in the other bucket that they're not supposed to be in. We can think of the poison gas model. We can think of biological weapons treaties, other things that are universal and symmetric. But maybe going forward, We'll have some haves and some not have nots with different cyber technologies. I'm not wedded to saying what it must look like, but I do know it must be universal so that everyone knows the standing of everyone else. If you've studied game theory and things, that's really the only way it's going to work. Enforceable. You need a credible ability to detect, monitor, and verify. That's something we hugely lack. The ability to attribute actions, the ability to credibly enforce them, it's a real challenge. Lastly, stability, and I'm using a math term. Anyone here know what a Nash equilibrium is from game theory, math? Okay, a very easy description of it is no actor would want to change their own strategy given 
the strategies the other players are currently playing at that time. Now, it can be a very precarious balance point, but no one wants to get off that balance point. This was a little bit where we were in the Cold War with mutually assured destruction. It wasn't comfortable, it wasn't happy, but we found that place where we could teeter and stay without destroying ourselves or anyone else. Doesn't have to be the ideal situation for anyone either. It's no, it can be no one's favorite position, but given what everyone else is doing, no one wants to move. That's what you need to have a stable architecture. So let's talk about the environment we're actually dealing with in cyberspace. These are my terms, they're not official terms, but I want to use them to convey concepts. First I say it's dualist. It has a duality to it where the same channels of activity, the same infrastructure, the same technologies are used for multiple purposes. It's used for public and private sector. Uh, within the military, it's used for both strategic and tactical. There used to be a day where if you went after certain satellite reconnaissance assets, it was deemed a massive existential threat to the other side because those reconnaissance and monitoring and verification entities were really only used to support the nuclear deterrent. So if you were trying to blind those eyes or those capabilities, it meant you were trying to do something nefarious in the nuclear world. And you didn't need those for conventional activity in a regional theater or in a border skirmish. With today's digitized, informatized warfare, smart weapons, you're actually leveraging those constellations of satellites, those other capabilities, to do even very precise, small-scale military operations. So does it bring any of you comfort, if you're a military commander, when your opponent says, I had to blind your strategic reconnaissance assets because I only want to do a border skirmish with one platoon? You're not going to be comfortable, okay? That's part of the dualism. Even worse on the dualism is, back in the day, again, to use the nuclear Cold War era, your Coercive retaliatory options, if you were the United States, were ICBMs, strategic bombers, and submarines with nuclear capacity largely. Your monitoring, verification, and signaling happened from completely separate physical platforms. Satellites, U-2 and SR-71 airplanes, defense attaches. So you could be doing this diplomatic and observing realm that never exposed your actual retaliatory capacity. We're not going to get into all the particulars here today, but I will assert those aren't bifurcated today. The ability to hold your opponent at risk is the exact same set of technologies that you would use to collect information on them. Therefore, I have a deterrent on me to declare when I'm a victim and to signal you about my credible capability. Because if the only way I can show you that I know what you did, or if the only way that I can show you that I can punch you back is by revealing the very capability that I would use to deliver that malicious payload. Because the minute I revealed I had that capability, you would either sever that access, you would reverse engineer a countermeasure to it. So we are actually in a security dynamic where the victim has a disincentive to declaring that they were a victim. And because the price of these capabilities, and we'll get to this on the next slide, you've actually raised the bar 
for the person you would want to be bringing these events into the light in the most detail possible. Some of us here have been on this in events where we've seen foreign government diplomats stand on the stage, and this was done publicly, so I will acknowledge it was someone from the Russian Foreign Ministry, he said this on the record, that North Korea was not responsible for the attack on Sony. Asserted that. The U.S. diplomat responded by saying, yes, they were. We have high evidence proof of that, but it involves intelligence sources and methods that we will never share with you. You will never see the evidence. Where does that get you in the international dynamic? It tells you that there's a cost to proving your case that actually would undermine your own security. Non-severable, again, probably not the best word, but I want to use that to capture the concept that you used to have domestic threats and international threats, and you have different sets of rules for them. Please. Too kind. We were both in Lowell House together. Both in Lowell House together. And it also demonstrates the role of lawyers in the intelligence field. And you can just the, the brilliance of his presentation demonstrates why his legal background is so important to his role as the NIO for cyber. Uh, so keep listening to him, and I will follow him closely. <laughs> I'm Take care. Tonight, so come on. Awesome. We got one of my students here. Where? Uh, here tonight. Uh, Griswold one ten. Okay. What time? Seven o'clock. Awesome. I'm going there. Right. Very good. We'll, you, we'll do. Yeah. Uh, and I'll pick up Juan's comment there. The reason I was picked to be the first NIO is because I had enough of the understanding of the technology. I am not a computer scientist. I am not a programmer. I am not an electrical engineer. But I understood enough of it. I knew the legal background about a lot of the issues before they became the primary issues. My contribution to the Harvard International Law Journal on information warfare in 1996 was one of the earlier pieces looking at all the questions that 15 years later are getting discussed in the UN. And then coming from a background of strategic thinking and analysis, and I spent 11 years at CIA working with components that did intelligence operations, was able to bring those pieces together and explain them to the policymakers, Juan and others, who were doing their role as the policymakers on what the actual impacts were, how this space differs from the paradigms that they were traditionally used to. And we had great dialogues and the ability to help advance our nation's thinking on this and many other nations as well. And when I say many other nations, I'm even going to include some countries like Russia and China who fundamentally disagree with us on certain principles, but I've actually sat there and given an intelligence brief to Russians on the other side of the table who shared a concern about escalation if a proxy actor or a non-state actor were tried to instigate a conflict between new nations, two nation states. So there is a role for internationalism, academic thinking, and lawyer thinking to think through some of these problems. Now, you need the technologists, you need others, and you need your national security defenders, but there is a role for folks like us who have had the ability and opportunity to see this from a multitude of perspectives. And that's one reason I was really happy to come here today, as I explained to these gentlemen. Berkman Center is awesome. You guys do a lot less national security than some of the other cyber research centers around the country. 
And I think all the various centers should be exposed to all the different facets, privacy, e-commerce, national security, because these things are inextricably linked, as you're seeing from my discussion of the private sector's role and the various considerations that have to come into play. So to non-severable, your domestic and your foreign threats are actually joined in cyberspace in a way that you're not used to if you're a national security decision maker. You used to have two different series of threats, which each had their own sets of rules. Domestically, I was worried about regime stability, riots in the streets, managing my fiscal policy myself, managing my currency myself, okay? And I was allowed to use OC gas on people rioting in my capital square, which would have been illegal under international law to use on an enemy who was trying to shoot me with a bullet. Can't use tear gas in international warfare. You can use it on your own citizens in a riot. Different sets of rules. What happens in cyberspace with this globally connected internet, you have people halfway around the world who can be meddling and instigating in your internal affairs. We saw some of these issues in the Arab Spring uh, revolutions. And you can have individuals within your own country antagonizing and attacking foreign governments overseas, even though they're not a part of your own military. Yet under principles of state responsibility, you're in charge of making sure things like that aren't happening through your own law enforcement apparatus. It's a crazy world here. And one of the quotes that really captures it for me was when he was president of Russia, Mr. Medvedev, in res reflecting upon the Arab Spring revolutions, said, quote, I don't speak Russian, so I'm going to give it to you in a bad English translation, they are going to do that to us next. They, of course, being the Western intelligence services, who Russia believed instigated those revolutions, going to do that, displace United Russia as the ruling regime, to us next. Your external and your internal security threats are wedded, confused, complicated. That's not the normal way that decision makers sitting in situation rooms at the White House or the Kremlin or Beijing or anywhere else are traditionally used to approaching these problems. Normally, if you had a missile coming at you, you would geolocate it coming over the pole, and you'd have a pretty darn good idea of where it launched from. Really, your only question was, was this launched under the National Command Authority? Or was it a rogue actor in the military who somehow was able to press the button without their appropriate superior's approval? Today, when you have a massive cyber attack happening to you, is it a teenage criminal? Is it an organized narco-trafficking cartel? Is it a hacking group? Is it ideological extremists? Is it a foreign nation state who's preparing for a kinetic invasion? You don't know in the first instance the way you used to have a very good idea. And you can see this is where the whole realm of international conflict is going if you are familiar with you know, the little green men in Crimea. No dog tags, no patches, interesting munitions that greatly resembled Spetsnaz equipment, but they were just guys who showed up and are now helping a grassroots revolution. Where are they from? I don't know. They just showed up, but they're pretty well-armed and uniformed. Just no patches. That's sort of a fun and interesting physical manifestation of what we see in cyberspace. Oh, someone is intruding into my network. Someone is stealing my government personnel records from the Office of Personnel Management. Someone is doxing the executives of company, whatever. Who's doing this? What's the purpose? Saudi Aramco isn't working today on its corporate networks. What's happening? Uh, multipolar. 
pretty self-explanatory. Cold War was monolithic, two entities, largely. Not only do you have a hundred and some countries who are playing this space, you have thousands of non-state actors playing in this and potentially millions of individuals who have smart devices. Every phone you're all holding has more capacity in it than the Apollo space program. Okay? Every person who has one of those smartphones on the planet can do more processing than we could do in the Apollo space program. I talked a little bit about disincentives to the victim revealing what's happened and using their sources and methods available to prove things um, because they're perishable. If I show you my capability, you can figure out a way against it. They're also specific. What do I mean by that? Anywhere of a JDAM, a really large kinetic munition, you know, you go out, fly it over Nevada, drop it, it blows up, and you figure out the blast radius. And occasionally when you're doing your military testing, you have different kinds of vehicles and things at different ranges. And you get a sense of what the effect is on all different kinds of things at different distances. Alternatively, a 9mm bullet will have roughly the same impact on all human flesh. Male, female, Asian, African, European. It's pretty much going to do the same thing to you. Not true of cyber malware. It is absolutely dependent on the target network. What does that mean? That means, and you're going to be my victim, sir, I have to design bullets that say David. Now, if I'm producing battleships that I put out to, on the high seas and say they're there to protect, protect my country's national security, help wayward ships that fall harmed in hurricanes, and to, you know, stop piracy on the high seas. Are you personally threatened by that? Probably not. But if I have my manufacturing plant and I'm only churning out David bullets, how do you feel about that? What do you probably start doing? Thank you. <laughs> so now we have what's known as an arms race, and a very particular escalatory arms race. It's also an immediate problem. You used to have about 15 minutes to determine what you wanted to do if you think an ICBM was coming over the pole. To identify it, wake up the president, get the Secretary of Defense somehow on a secure link, and start figuring out what you want to do. If you actually had the real cyber kitten caboodle coming at you from a nation state adversary who decided today's the day, do you think you have 15 minutes before those things take effect? Do you think you have 15 minutes? Seconds? How long do you think it takes to convene the, a five members of the cabinet in the White House Situation Room? Think you can do that in 15 seconds? Do you think you can even get the red phone patched in between your Secretary of Defense and your President of the United States, who we call POTUS in our abbreviations? Think POTUS can talk to Secretary of Defense in 15 seconds? So what's your national security decision? What? <laughs> so think about national security decision making. You know, I had, in some senses, I had the easy part when I'd go in and brief Juan because I could say, here's the whole bleeping situation. Good luck. Right? Because he was with the group who had to figure out what they were going to do about it. I had to figure out who was doing what before it became obvious. And then I would take it in and ruin someone's day with, here's what I got to tell you today. Uh, 
really, really different decision making. When you think about the processes you want involved in those very, very high level national security decision making decisions in your country and in every other country, cyber really upends the way you want them to be occurring. And a couple thoughts about how cyber operations are being used. Clandestine, we already discussed that no one's doing them with .mil or the equivalent of .mil packets. Outside of a couple terrorist organizations who try to claim credit for some of the web defacements and other things they do, or DDoSs. And of course, you know, that we also always have criminals and extremist organizations claiming credit for things they haven't done. Some part of human psychology. You unfortunately, whenever there's a murder, the police will usually tell you that they get a few calls of people uh, admitting that they did it, even though they had nothing to do with the situation. Um, so it's very confusing and muddying. Indiscriminate. We talked a little bit about civilian combatant distinctions and the requirement for discrimination under Geneva law in the international humanitarian law. That's really tough when you don't have segregated government military networks from your civilian networks. Pretty much everything you rely on for your daily life's communication, business, and commerce today will be a legitimate military target if you are in an international armed conflict under the laws of war. That's really troubling if you think about it analytically. Unpredictable. Remember, I'm churning out those David bullets, right? Let's imagine David got a windfall of money for his organization and upgraded his computer network. Will my David bullet work? We don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. Unpredictable. Here's another one. What if I didn't have all the requisite access to have perfect intelligence on what his network looked like? What if I wasn't exactly certain where his munitions depot was on his military's network compared to where its military hospitals were on the network? Could I have unintended consequences? Could I have what we call collateral damage? Could it be disproportionate under national humanitarian law? Quite possibly. You're not yet seeing enough of the data to know what would happen because we're not having these things tested in the open. And I'm not saying I want wars happening in cyberspace, but we lack information. This is like the insurance industry who just wants actuarial data. You tell me your age, race, where you live, and how long you've been drinking the water out of the tap there, they're going to be pretty darn good at telling you when you're going to die. And they're ready to sell you a premium that will make them money. We don't have that kind of actuarial and knowledge data that we have on kinetic munitions or in the insurance industry. Welcome. In this space. So it's a very complex and indeterminate realm of conflict. We're going to go from the pure deterrence, the IR, international relations discussion, to the arms control legal discussion. The Russian Federation for years has been pushing for an international treaty to prevent the development and use of cyber weapons. By the way, remember I said we're going to have some definitional lexicon stuff? What's a cyber weapon? Does a cyber weapon mean the same thing to everyone in this room? Probably not. How many of you think broadcasting CNN from a satellite such that it can be received within the Russian Federation constitutes a weapon? You do? Uh, the Russian Federation officially does. We, not, the United States, would not consider that a form of attack. Ma'am. Um, 
the nuclear space, arms control space, in the cybersphere, using that metaphor, to what extent do you think that's really stuck in? Are they slowly transitioning over to realize? We are doing our best to prevent them from solidifying that metaphor because it doesn't work. It, it's, it's a helpful starting point to find similarities and distinctions. It's helpful in a couple ways. Things like building confidence measures, right? We had confidence building measures through defense attache offices, through diplomatic meetings with the Soviet Union during very tense times. We weren't friends, but we did have certain channels of communication. So there are some lessons to be learned. We now have a bilateral cyber agreement with Russia that has some means of communication between our CERT and their CERT and between our senior executives and their senior executives. We now have some similar dialogues and arrangements with China in cyberspace. So there are some lessons that you can learn and carry over, but the security dynamic from the game theory perspective of what worked then, if you've read Thomas Schelling and Herman Kahn, the things that worked for them aren't going to work for you in cyberspace because of the technological realities that distinguish this from that model. So I few threw things up here. Uh, foundational disagreement over the purpose. Do you think the Russians ever used the word cyber? They only use it in international meetings, and they pronounce it Kieber with a K. I don't speak Russian or read Cyrillic, but in the meetings they say Kieber. They prefer information and communication technology, ICT, largely the way the uh, European uh, reference is. In the United States, certainly post-September 11th, 2001, we have primarily focused on cybersecurity as a critical infrastructure protection problem. We want the infrastructure, the pipes, the equipment to be working. We are worried about the plumbing being in place. Under our incredibly liberal First Amendment, and I'm not being partisan here, compared to other nations, the First Amendment of the United States is incredibly permissive in what is permissible political speech and other things compared to what you can say in other countries. We don't pay very much attention to what's going through the pipe, the informational content. We want to make sure the pipe is working. Other nations, particularly authoritarian regimes and some more conservative regimes, really care about things like pornography, dissident speech, hate speech, and they have criminalized it in their nations. They care about the content. There are many nations where you can't talk about how absolutely idiotic the party's debate was last night in the primary, okay? Or how ridiculous the ruling official is. They, call, they consider that destabilizing. Or you can't promote Falun Gong in China. That is considered a dissident group and it's illegal. So there is fundamental disagreement over what the entire objective of information security is. Are you simply making sure the pipes are working, or are you regulating what is flowing through them? That's why you are not going to get to an international cyber treaty in the near future. Uncertain application of international law. I told you that the UN group of governmental experts has acknowledged that the UN Charter and international law apply in cyberspace. Now the fun part starts where those delegates are getting back together and trying to decide how they apply. Chief amongst those uncertainties is specifically whether or not countries like Russia and China believe that the laws of armed conflict all apply in cyberspace. So if you have three different views coming from three 
permanent members of the UN Security Council. Do you think you have dispositive global norms? Do you think you know which bucket everyone falls into in those transparent, universal security architecture I was talking about? When three entities who can veto any Security Council resolution fundamentally disagree on the objective of the whole project and have different national objectives? Third, absence of common terminology. Are we talking about ICT or cyber? What's an attack? Does attack include espionage? All undetermined at the international level. And any of you who are US taxpayers, you've got a lot of lawyers you're paying to discuss these things who, even within our own government, we don't have consensus. Dual use nature of information technology. I covered that under the cyber environment itself earlier. Uh, dynamic innovation technology center sector. Anyone here studying international or treaty law? How long did it take to get the law of the sea convention? Good answer. Uh, nowadays, if you're actually going to get a treaty, it is being measured in years, right? Maybe longer, maybe decades. Who knows what Moore's law is? We had a couple technology people. Okay, how fast does the technology cycle rotate? 18 months. Am I going to write a treaty based on, and whatever words I'm going to put in it, because you and I can't agree on the lexicon. We've all sent our diplomats to Geneva or, the, or New York for the UN meetings. We start out, you know, we have to have long coffee breaks and things too. Uh, but we don't agree on the purpose of why we're there. We don't agree on the words we want, let alone, you know, translating them because that's another wonderful thing. When the word gets translated into the six official languages of the UN, it can have different nuances, right? We will still be having those meetings as the new technology is getting rolled out. So all the provisions I had thought up of what we want to prohibit or restrict or restrain, I'm going to have a whole new set of activities to deal with. I'll give you two examples. One is from the criminal world. Artificial narcotics and drugs. You have statutes that criminalize certain molecules, right? You create a different molecule that's not explicitly outlawed. It takes a while for the law to catch up and say, hey, that thing is, goes in that category as well. Very, very tough to play catch up. And you're not going to stay ahead of that game. That's why we're in the realm of norms and confidence building measures, because at the side of purpose and practicality, the nations don't think we can get there. The last one was about establishing arms control mechanisms. How about enforcing them? You have so many actors compared to what you've had before in international conflict scenarios. You have so many different targets. The space, the, the surface area, the attack surface area that you're trying to defend against is gigantic in today's society. And if you go and read Director Clapper's worldwide threat assessment from February for this year, we start with the Internet of Things. Not because the intelligence community is trying to prevent the Internet of Things from coming, because A, we don't, and B, it's coming regardless. But we acknowledge that technology change that's coming. We acknowledge the role that artificial intelligence is going to be playing in automating so many processes. And we acknowledge that both the intelligence profession and the way you conceive of national security has to change as the world around you is changing. And by extension, 
your national security decision-making processes, the processes are going to have to change as well. Unobservable nature of cyber tools, number three, attribution versus obfuscation. Nations ranging from Russia to the Netherlands have proposed that there should be an international body under the UN which will adjudicate the proof that nation states offer to determine if it successfully attributes an attack to a nation state that would then permit them to respond in certain ways under national law. Really, really tough when, like we discussed before, many of those abilities to attribute are going to be based on intelligence or other capabilities which you will not want to reveal because it would basically eradicate your own national security capabilities to respond in cyberspace. Proliferation, a lot tougher than tracking fissile material or missile components on boat that are traveling on you know, freighters around the world. How do you know when a certain piece of software code left the United States electronically? Anyone who's following the Wassenaar Agreement discussions on import-export controls, talk about an incredibly difficult challenge if you want to implement it. Even setting aside whether you want that rule or not, and industry and others have arguments why they don't want it, but even if you were trying to just implement it, nearly impossible. Uh, huge discussions about encryption nowadays, and a lot of that happening everywhere else, uh, a lot of different media and uh, academic and industry discussions. I will simply just say from the National Intelligence Officer's perspective, everyone I'm worried about is a foreign intelligence officer who woke up to break U.S. law that day. They're an extremist or terrorist who wants to put on a bomb vest or shoot other people, murder. They're narco-traffickers who are going to violate a bunch of laws. Everyone I'm dealing with woke up that day to do very bad things that were illegal. Do I think any of them are going to oh, we forgot to register with the FBI's key escrow. <laughs> we can't go blow up the bomb vest yet. Okay? So from my perspective, I expect strong encryption to be used widely. I expect people to be violating any limitations that are on it. And I expect that we have to up our game in the law enforcement and security community to do the best we can to pursue our mission with the reality that technology will be making it tougher for us and raising the bar. Uh, really important way to perceive things. If we can slow the progress of adversaries, great. But I'm not going to count on that. Uh, insufficient cooperation, number four. Guess what we get very good cooperation on around the world in cyberspace? Law enforcement cooperation. Thank you, sir. Child pornography. Different nations may set the age of the victim at 18, 16, 14, but above a certain age, or below a certain age, you actually have international consensus that that is a despicable thing, and we get wonderful assistance, and we give wonderful assistance, to nations that often show up in the adversary category when it's about children being abused. That's an obvious one where we've made progress. That's the super low-hanging fruit. We're starting to try to look for other areas where nations can agree 
this shouldn't be happening, we'll work together. We're not as far along as we'd like to be. We're not yet seeing countries fulfill the norms that they've proposed in the Group of Governmental Experts reports. Uh, I could be optimistic as anyone else and hope that we make progress, but it's slow so far. Sir. Uh, here we go. If you send letters rogatory to the People's Republic of China or to the Russian Federation about an alleged child pornography case, you will probably get assistance from the FSB or the Ministry of Public Safety or Security in China. Okay? They are interested in that because you have, you agree on the fundamental objective. If you seek assistance from certain countries about cyber penetrations of certain things that may have happened in your country, you can imagine the theft of commercial information or trade secrets from a company. You can imagine the exploitation of a federal database. You may not get the same kind of assistance. It's what's the mechanism, is the cooperation you're seeking available? In certain areas like child pornography, you actually get pretty darn good cooperation. In a lot of others, like economic espionage cases, you're probably not getting very helpful feedback when you send overseas. And I will actually note, when we talk to a lot of our international partners, particularly India as one example, they lament how long it takes the U.S. government to respond to requests for information. You know, lots of data from people all around the world is stored on U.S. servers through a lot of the email systems and other things. Well, imagine if you're an Indian investigator trying to solve a triple homicide and the individual was communicating with, I'm not going to name a company, fill in the blank on what email service, which is, you know, was stored somewhere in the U.S. Countries like India and many others are concerned at how long it takes them to get answers and assistance. So a lot of countries are claiming they're not getting the assistance that they're seeking. Sir, did you have a question or a comment as well? MLAT, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty. Yep. Uh, so Interpol is an institution that will help with the administrative side of conveying this individual, there's an arrest warrant out for them in country A, therefore you put out what's called an Internet Interpol Red Notice. So if that person, and they distribute it to a bunch of the other national police organizations around the world. Uh, the MLAT is actually going to be a a, usually a bilateral treaty between two countries regarding things like extradition or other things, or evidentiary assistance. Yeah. Uh, last slide. Sort of summing up, but sort of really trying to hit the bolts, the, the keynotes of what I want you to think. Number one, cyber conflict is here to stay. Most countries are finding it too appealing. I've not yet seen any country swear off capacity building or swear off what it considers its sovereign prerogative and by contrast, we already gave the examples of South Africa and Brazil saying they did not want to be nuclear powers. Strategic tool being used for intervention short of war. Again, I'm not a subscriber to the cyber Armageddon thesis because this asymmetric conflict capacity is specifically being used where it falls in the gray zone, where you are not going to trip the requirements of Article 2.4, Article 51, of the UN Charter. You don't want to do something that will legitimize a kinetic military self-defense response from the person you're perpetrating it on. 
Okay, this is what we're perceiving. So we say it's happening short of words in this intervention realm. Uh, and of course, when you're not in an international armed conflict, international humanitarian law doesn't apply unless you're in one of the signatory states to the second additional protocol, which the United States is not, and which is not broadly viewed as customary international law yet. Additional Protocol 1 is. The United States has not signed Additional Protocol 1, yet it's largely viewed as customary international law, and the U.S. abides by those provisions as a matter of policy. AP2, Additional Protocol 2, we're not signatory, and it's not considered customary international law by the international law academies. Uh, number two deals with non-international conflicts. Think of things like the uh, think like the Balkan conflicts, where nations were internally conflicting, and where's the border? Who are the groups? What represents the nation state itself? That's the kind of situation that's envisioned. Civil wars and things like that are in AP two. Uh, Technical realities do not mirror arms control models. I tried to give you a bit of that, contrasting it with you know, some examples of bio, chem, nuclear. Uh, none of the existing paradigms fit. Some of them can be helpful in certain ways, but none of them is lock and load. Uh, incentives point in directions that leads towards escalation. We heard about that bullet arms race that David and I were going to be in. We heard about the disincentive to declaring and proving when you're a victim. We heard about the disincentive to signaling your credible threat of retaliation because it might lead to a compromise of that capacity. These are all destabilizing features of the environment we're currently in. Mutually declared concern and some diplomatic progress. That one gets a little green plus sign over on the side because that's actually really good. And the fact that you are getting countries that absolutely disagree on the fundamental objective, still coming together in Geneva and agreeing to at least some things, that's great. That's progress. The fact that on September 25th, 2015, the United States president and the Chinese president agreed to a series of things, that's great. So we're making some minor progress. Uh, resilience is the first step towards deterrence. We actually convened a session down in Washington where we brought in some of the brightest international relations and arms control theorists we knew. And we thought this was going to be some hawk and dove discussion all about offense and how do you deter offense. We were amazed that everyone to a man and a woman who presented somewhere in their presentation said, you need to increase your own defense and your own resilience for your security and for collective security. The widespread vulnerabilities and the fear that those lead to in everyone is a collectively destabilizing feature. So you actually want to improve your own resilience. And for de-escalation, you probably want your opponent to increase their own resilience. That's an interesting feature. Question, comment? Sir, yeah. Except in that way. I mean, that's, well, yes and no, because if you think about the missile defense shield, there was a lot of discussion that if one country put up a missile defense shield, that that would be destabilizing. So in some way, yes, in some way, no. Both sides wanted to have a strong offense for mutual assured destruction. If someone were to increase their own resilience so high to undermine the other side's credible threat, 
that would be destabilizing. Uh, deterrence requires public knowledge of capability and intent. We don't yet have very sophisticated statements and rules of engagement and red lines declared. What you're getting from the countries whose militaries have put out white papers on their defense strategies in cyberspace, they largely have two components. Number one, we will exercise the right to defend our information systems as we need. And in a time of conflict, we will do whatever we feel we need to to degrade the ability of the other side to use their own information systems. Uh, little chest beating, understandable. But you have both sides, or multipolar sides, all trying to increase their own offensive capacities. It will be very helpful when eventually we get to a point where rules of engagement, specific policy red lines, are publicly declared. Now, there are some disincentives to doing that. Because if you say, here's the line in the sand, thou shalt not cross, someone crosses it, imagine. Are you obliged to do whatever your threat was? Question, are you obliged to do whatever you threatened you would do? Here, no, I say, correct, you're not obliged. If that line gets crossed 50 times and you never do anything, do you have a credible threat? So where between 0 and 50 is the right place? And how grievous, how far across the line does someone have to come for you to respond? And depending on how far they cross or come, come across the line, how strongly, proportionately, disproportionately do you respond? The last two ones are ones that are really meaningful. I've hinted that I'm at them already. If you go read the UNGGE reports and you read the Tallinn Manual, where the discussions are going in international law and international diplomacy are all about things that shouldn't be attacked. They are about effects. Remember my slide earlier that had actions, actors, capabilities, and effects? The progress we've made to date is largely in the area of trying to limit the effects. I made that comment about, can you keep software code from traveling outside the country electronically? Proliferation doesn't seem to be probable. Or preventing proliferation doesn't seem to be pro probable. Getting nation states to willfully limit their own capabilities doesn't seem to be happening. You are hearing a wide range of nation states articulate a desire to somehow create norms that will limit or minimize certain types of effects. Those of you who study LOAC, laws of armed conflict, or international humanitarian law, you know the distinction between Hague law and Geneva law. Geneva law is that stuff about not harming non-combatants. Okay? The distinction principle. Hague law usually refers to a series of Hague conventions which talks about means and methods of warfare. This is where the poison gas prohibitions fall, or certain times of munitions. In wartime, you're not supposed to be shooting each other with plastic bullets because they're too tough to find on x-rays. So it leads to unnecessary suffering on the victim. What I'm offering analytically is that the progress in the near future in this realm probably comes under the flavor of Geneva law, not Hague law. It's about limiting targets and effects not trying to limit the means, methods, and capabilities. Lastly, I talked about those two series of platforms, your credible threat platforms that we used to have in the nuclear age versus your reconnaissance and signaling platforms. I mentioned that they were combined in today's world in cyberspace, not in the nuclear world, right? But in cyberspace, 
It's the same channel, it's the same platform, it's the same vector. I offer that until you can technologically find a solution to bifurcating those two national and international security functions, you are going to have a really tough time reaching a stable security architecture. Because everything in the Thomas Schelling work about signaling and that dance in game theory and deterrence theory, you can't do the basic things you want to do to convey messages. Okay? Our Joint Chiefs of Staff of the U.S. military, after I gave him a briefing at one point, asked me, how would we know what a shot across the bow looked like in cyberspace? Who shot it? Or what they were meaning to convey to us by shooting it? Think about that. If you have a cruise missile come within one mile of your naval vessel in the Persian Gulf, you usually have a pretty good idea of who shot it. You usually may have a sense of what message they were trying to give you. And you certainly detected that a missile was flying past you. You can't really always do any of those in cyberspace. <laughs> we do have ways of trying to do attribution and stuff. Uh, and attribution, and we actually say this in the Worldwide Threat Assessment a couple places. I won't read it to you. I'll paraphrase last year and this year, attribution is getting better. And not just government intelligence ability to do attribution, but a lot of private sector companies in the US, internationally, in China, in Russia, you know, Kaspersky, 360 out of China, lots of people are getting much better at this stuff. How long did you have for your president to call your minister of defense and make that national security decision? 15 seconds? Will we have certitude of attribution within 15 seconds? Usually not. So we're getting much better at attribution. Private sector is getting much better at attribution. The issue is real-time attribution that serves your national security need. That is still tough. Not impossible. Sometimes you get it quickly. Sometimes you don't. But it's still a challenge. It's not something you can count on. Those are the slides I brought. That's the stuff I wanted to throw out there on the table. I don't have my glasses on, so I don't know where we are on time. Uh, I leave that to our hosts, but I'm willing to take some questions if that's desirable. Yeah, I think this is probably about time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great question. Yeah, folks, do you have any questions about me? If we, can, we have some mics, or we can probably just go and respond to the person. I don't know if you just want to grab people. Uh, We'll go with the lady and then the gentleman. I know you guys have also already asked stuff. If someone raises their hand who hasn't already asked something, I'm going to pick them. But for the time being, let's start with these two. Um, so you've talked about things from a very state-centric point of view. Yes. Could you talk a little bit more about acting with non-state actors and how to deal with non-state actors or how, how the United States is approaching non-state actors? Okay. Uh, from my office... I am concerned with non-state actors to the extent they pose threats. So whether you're a criminal syndicate, ideological hackers, if you have a capability which is being directed against US or allied interests or assets, you're something I'm interested in figuring out what you're doing, right? And hopefully being able to figure out how to stop you from doing it. Uh, so non-state actors qualify as legitimate threats in my world. As far as how to deal with them, uh, they're usually doing something. Are they killing people? Are they stealing money? Are they stealing data? 
depending on the act and the effect, that may be a law enforcement problem. It may be an international law enforcement problem. It may be a military problem. And the respective organs of the US government who deal with law enforcement or military issues would be the entities that would respond based on the information we provide and the understanding of the situation. And then, of course, at an international level, if something is emanating from a state and it is not being curtailed by that state, then you have avenues under international law and diplomacy under the principle of state responsibility. You may recall that the United States and coalition partners invaded Afghanistan to remove the de facto Taliban government because they were not able to exercise one of the basic premises of sovereignty under public international law. They were not exercising territorial dominion to prevent the emanation of international security breaches from their territory, meaning they were shielding Al-Qaeda, which was operating from their territory. If you think about that in a cyber context, and you read the GGE reports, they reference that same international law principle, arguably stating that if the world is being harmed by packets coming from a specific country, other countries can communicate to that country what's happening and expect them to take some sort of action independently against those malevolence or to accept international assistance to curtail those malevolence. Again, these later things are all at the policy level and diplomacy level. That wouldn't be happening from my office. Those would be decisions of others. Uh, but from an intelligence collection and analysis side, non-state actors are right up there front and center and doing bad things. And we will, we, when something starts happening, we don't know who's responsible for it. So it could be non-state, it could be state. Did you have another aspect of the question? non-state actors have been an active threat, or is it more state actors that are using non-state Yes and yes. Clearly in the criminal world, there are very sophisticated and active non-state actors. In other aspects, yes, there are almost certainly some entities that are acting as proxies during geopolitical conflicts and otherwise. So uh, I would say all of those are on the table and things we're concerned about. Sir. And we'll come to ma'am later. Sir. So I just wanted to uh, essentially disentangle a few threads you had in your sure. in your message that I'm getting a little confused. So one of the, the things you talk about is the strong disincentive for a victim of an attack to perform some sort of public attribution of that attack because they're revealing capabilities. But also, if you look at the deterrence model, I think there's a strong capability or there's a strong incentive for them to reveal some form of capabilities because otherwise, because cyber attacks are so in, unpredictable and uncertain in their effects it's impossible for you as a would-be adversary to really know what's going to happen to you in a deterrence model if there is no demonstration of capability. There is both an incentive and a disincentive, and you have appropriately characterized them. I'll give you two examples from the US perspective. Uh, the Department of Justice indicted five Chinese military actors for what we considered economic espionage activities. If you read those indictments, you will see that they largely consist of information that is consistent with a private sector research report put out by Mandiant over a year earlier. I would offer there was not shocking new evidence in the indictments, which was not already in the public domain, courtesy of private security researchers. Contrast that with the Sony situation, and it is very, very rare that I get to go to Congress and say, we have high confidence in the attribution of this event. I got to do that in Sony. 
on December 19, 2014, when the FBI press release comes out, they very clearly stated that the government of North Korea was responsible for that activity. Did they adduce any evidence? Did they offer any proof in that? Or did they just say, this is who's responsible? Okay? It's an in, we, in, in the profession, we call it intelligence gain loss. What are you going to gain by doing it versus what sources and methods, which could have cost thousands, millions of dollars to put in place to procure foreign intelligence information, what are you willing to compromise that may not work tomorrow if you prove your case? And it's going to vary on a case-by-case -case basis. I do take your comment that in a strategic environment, there is an incentive to show your credible threat. There's an incentive to declare your red line. We haven't seen that getting done yet. At the strategic reality side, we're just not seeing it yet. And that's one of the reasons we embarked on these studies to ask the question, why aren't the actors acting the way they do in other strategic environments? And we keep coming back to just the technological realities of this environment. So I'll say thank you for the comment. Anything further on the point? Or? Lines have been declared. But so in the, uh, I forget the exact name of the document. But we did say that if an attack rose to the level of armed equivalency, that was effectively our red line that that would be treated as any other military action and we'd use yep. full breadth of responses. So where is the definition of what that red line is even in the kinetic world in international law? The an term is attack. used. What? An armed attack? Yeah. How, many, how much dollar value of property damage? How many cadavers? But I'm saying even, even in the brick and mortar world, that international law term is not operatively defined. It is still left to subjective determination by the ICJ or by the victim state to see if it wants to exercise its Article 51 rights. So you're absolutely correct. It's ambiguous in the cyber realm. It's actually subjective and somewhat ambiguous even in the kinetic realm. And that leaves you in a case-by-case -case or you know, the old ad adage, I know it when I see it. Well, you're back to a realpolitik situation. Uh, are there things that I think would absolutely qualify? Yes. Destroying hospitals, you know, medical systems, and having thousands of innocent civilian patients die. Yeah, I think most nations are going to say that's unacceptable and merits a response in order to cease that activity. Uh, it's a sad reality that whenever you have a massive snowstorm and a blackout or a power failure in summer, even in the United States, you will usually lose a couple individuals' lives in a major metropolitan center. So I ask you, if a cyber attack happened and you had one death, are you going to war over that? 10 deaths? 100 deaths? When I've been asked this question, I see your hand, ma'am. Got it. And yours. How many people died, I mean killed in action, on December 7, 1941. 2,000 something, slightly less than 3,000. How many casualties, deaths, occurred on September 11, 2001? Slightly under 3,000, 2,000 something. So when I've been really pressed on this question by policymakers, I say, I do not know what the answer is. I do not know where the cutoff is. 
But I would suspect if someone killed 3,000 U.S. citizens with a cyber attack that we would consider it an armed attack and we'd go to war. Why? Because the last two times we got near that threshold, we entered global military operations. It was a law enforcement problem at that time, is how it was treated. Uh, and, and a counterterrorism problem, but it was largely dealt with as a law enforcement, not an international armed attack. Okay. Uh, we're going to use something we do in conferences. Are any of the hands that are up specifically on the thread we're just discussing? Because we're going to change topics, it's going to that lady. But if you're specifically on this topic, I'll take it. Ma'am? That we're talking about, right? So, like, thank you. So, like, who is it that dies, right? Like, who, who is the like three or four people that die, or like, what is the context, or you know, does it occur on television in a really spectacular way where like the response has to be something, right? Like, to me, it seems as though, um, you know, and, and, and also by contrast, like you know, not just do you go to war over that, but like, why don't you go to war over or respond more forcefully to certain situations which are, really do seem like they merit that, you know, a, a major response, but they don't get it. And it seems to me that it actually, I, I wonder actually if it has to do with the number of lives as much as it has to do with how the event or how you know, the people involved function within, like, the larger symbolic system that we're dealing with, right? I think there will be both law and policy components to that. The legal component would be the civilian combatant distinction. Are these uniformed military personnel during a conflict, or are they non-combatant civilians? So there are aspects where the legal status of the individuals would make a difference. I think that some of the other things you're talking about of how sensationalized it was, is it a beheading on TV, what's happening? Those are going to be policy determinations because if you're a civilian and you're getting killed by a foreign state, whether it's filmed or not, is not legally operative, it may be policy relevant to if the nation state decided it was going to respond in that incidence because of the grievous sensationalized nature. So both on legal grounds in some instances or on policy grounds, who it happens to and how it happens may matter. But a lot of the things you see sensationalized, there's not a legally operative distinction at play. It's just it shocks your conscience, and therefore you want to fight back. Uh, I'd like to go to her. Just, she hasn't had a chance yet. Uh, okay. Uh, I would like to ask about uh, the changing battlefield. It's like a The changing? Battlefield. Yes. Like it, the U.S. and uh, the like nations are changing the battlefield from what it's traditionally conceived to be to the cyberspace. They might be doing this intentionally or unintentionally, but as they respond, the other, like maybe terrorist groups are also sophisticating their kind of attacks. So in the end, it seems like we're having more of the effects, more casualties more civilian casualties than uh, more combatants being killed. So how do you think of this? It seems more to, seems to be more of a cowardice kind of war or 
Kawada's kind of uh, reactions to these uh, non-state uh, armed groups, then uh, it should be, it should, they should be protecting civilians, you know? But then it seems like civilians are getting more affected by the reactions than the, than the actors themselves. Uh, thank you. Uh, first thing I'll do is I'll say, coming to value-laden terms like cowardice are things that don't really play into my job. It's you perpetrated something, you caused an effect. You may be ideological, you may be serving a certain object. None of that matters to me. I care the effects you're causing. Um, so I won't make a value judgment about what constitutes chivalry or valor in conflict. What I will acknowledge is that cyberspace is becoming a much more conflictual space. From our analytic perspective, we've acknowledged that we have seen much more disruptive and destructive activity in the last four or five years than previously. Previously, it was largely espionage and what I would call small-scale disruptions like web defacements or minor DDoSs, distributed denial of service attacks. I can run off the list of Saudi Aramco, Qatar Razgas, Las Vegas Sands, the DDoSs against the US financial institutions, power outages in Ukraine, there are a lot more incidents, TV5 in France, TV5 Monde. Uh, there are a lot more incidents happening now that are disruptive and destructive. And I will also agree with you, ma'am, that think about everything I just named. Did any of them say frigate number whatever of the country's navy? Did any of them say air squadron whatever? No, those were all civilian entities. So I'm agreeing with you. It's becoming a more dangerous neighborhood from a disruption and destruction perspective. And yes, civilians are getting caught in the crosshairs of geopolitical conflicts. I find those incredibly concerning. When I go back and read the Geneva Conventions, that's not supposed to be what you're going after let in wartime, let alone in peacetime. Yet that appears to be what's happening. This intervention in the internal affairs of the private sector in other states during peacetime. So I largely agree with what you've observed. We've seen similar trends. Uh, I won't do a value judgment of what constitutes what militaries should or should not be doing. That's a policy issue, but I'm agreeing with you on what's happening in the conflict space. Uh, sir? Um, I was wondering, um, in a lot of ways, there does seem to be a desire for deterrence from other nations. Um, speaking of, you spoke of the agreements that we've signed with Russia and China. And I was wondering if, in your view, they share the same view of resilience as necessary to deterrence, um, resilience of national networks. And if not, if people have the same understanding of the equilibrium that's to emerge. And if they don't have the same understanding, how does that affect okay. how cyber norms develop? Uh, yes, like-minded and non-like-minded nations are all acknowledging certain concerns. I've told you one I've heard from the Russian diplomats for about eight years now is, what happens if a non-state actor attacks the United States and makes it look like Russia did it? Okay? They are very concerned about escalatory scenarios. They've articulated that, and I believe them that they're concerned about escalatory scenarios. I also firmly believe that they, like us and like almost every other country that can afford to try to do it, is trying to both improve their own cyber defenses and build their own offensive cyber capabilities. So I think everyone's trying to do both. 
where that leads us so far has been to the environment that I've described. Uh, I hope we move beyond that. I hope we find more common ground. But they've articulated a desire to build resilience. They've also articulated a desire to try to find means of de-escalation. Not there yet. Follow up? Oh, uh, you just reminded me one thing, and then I'll let you ask the question. Sure. You asked, do people know how we're thinking about it? Uh, I'm letting you live stream this, and I spoke it to 80 military and government officers from 49 different countries in Germany in December. So we are intentionally putting this out there, and quite frankly, our Russian and Chinese colleagues also do open source publications, whether it's from PLA, whether it's from some very knowledgeable individuals in the Russian Security Council and the Russian military world who have published on these things, both in the UN Disarmament Journal and others. Oh, I'm sorry, thank you. Uh, People's Liberation Army, the Chinese, mil Chinese military. Uh, so there are things being put on in public, and from my office's vantage point, this is part of our contribution to that strategic dialogue. My follow-up question is, if this is the case and you see resilience as central to other actors' thinking, is this an equilibrium that is fragile with respect to non-state actors who don't have to think as much about resilience, who don't have network architecture that they have to maintain? Certain non-state actors are incredibly destabilizing for a couple reasons. One is what you just said, right? And number two is that they may not have an incentive to limit collateral damage of their activities. We talked about the possibility of trying to do something and having unintended con cascading effects. You can imagine a scenario where a nation state would try to limit the proportionate effects to a certain objective. If you are a terrorist looking to cause carnage, the more the better, right? So you're right, some of those self-restraint limitations that you might expect in a nation-state environment may be completely absent with a non-state actor, which from my perspective leads to higher possibilities of insecurity. I tell you, we will take one, two, three, unless we have any ladies. Yeah, that's a good call. And if anyone who hasn't made a comment, we'll invite that. So all at once, let's take one, two, three, four, collectively, yeah. So uh, thank you for your uh, comments and insights. Um, so I'm really curious about, I'm actually, I, I found it really interesting that uh, states have this incentive to disclose that they are the victims yep. because apparently... To, uh, to prove to they prove. were, to prove what happened and who did it to them. Right. So uh, because apparently like a few days ago in South Korea, like Defense Ministry and also National Intelligence Service said that North Korea has, well, they alleged it, North Korea has done some kind of cyber attack. Sort of like our statement about Sony. Right. Here's what happened and who did it. But you're not proving how you know they did it. Right. Um, so I was just wondering, so um, so when it comes to North Korea, a country we, call, we consider to be most isolated, and right now because of this latest uh, nuclear and uh, missile experiment have already faced the most uh, serious uh, sanctions ever placed in the uh, United Nations history. Um, how do you actually get to deter North Korea from doing a future cyber attack? Because the country has already been facing lots of sanctions, so I don't see any kind of space within the, I would say, even, even within the kinetic area or, or financial or whatever that is uh, to deter North Korea from taking a future place. But at the same time, North Korea doesn't have like much um, connected a network uh, infrastructure as South Korea or any other countries in the developed world is. is. So 
there is, I would say, some issue of proportionality uh, exists when it comes to like a actor like North Korea conducting cyber attack on another foreign country. So how do you suggest to do it? If it and that's my first question. And second question is actually related to... Leave time for your colleagues. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, it's actually about the internet. So right now I know that uh, now ICANN has um, transferred some of its functions uh, from the United States to, the, I would say, uh, international organizations or private sector, uh, arguably, private sector. And so how do you Proposals actually... are underway. They right. haven't occurred yet. Right. Um, so how do you actually see uh, those kind of transfer of power... Uh, within the United States security. Okay, oh, I've got how do you deter North Korea and transitioning ICANN functions? I'm a police officer from Pakistan. Oh, great. A senior superintendent of police. Uh, I am concerned about the capacity of the states to detect the non-state actors uh, in, their, in their own country. And what about the U.S. in, term, in, two, in three aspects? Uh, uh, one in uh, in how uh, a state can co coordinate with with individuals, uh, businessmen, like businessmen are not ready to give information. Yep. They not they not they are not sharing whether they are uh, having this issue, and how to build their capacity with the collaboration. So it's a very difficult okay. uh, job for a, for a civil servant. All right. Yeah. Got it. Two more. Who are my other two? And uh, the three thousand deaths are. A, a clear justification for retaliation, but those all happened in one day. What if they happened over a month or a year? Okay. Uh, last question. Who had? I'll offer one last one. We had another hand, but if it's gone away, you get the last word, and then I'll try to do the speed round here. I think you made a really compelling case uh, in the beginning of your presentation about why it's so different now, because we have so many private sector companies involved in various types of things, which we may or may not classify as critical infrastructure. So do you see us moving into a new era where the conscription of those companies, or perhaps them volunteering in various types of actions, uh, is going to become more prevalent? Okay. I'm just going to take them in order because they're disparate questions. Deterring North Korea. You are right. They have limited digital infrastructure. That may lead you to something we're calling cross-domain deterrence there in the three from the bottom, where you're responding in economic channels or in kinetic military channels because you cannot impose the effect you wanted to. That's what cross-domain deterrence refers to. Uh, that becomes a policy decision of what you want to do. In the case of North Korea and Sony, we issued economic sanctions. We, the United States government, issued economic sanctions against 12 individuals who were not necessarily individuals and entities who are not necessarily linked to those cyber activities themselves. Okay, That was what the policy community in the United States government felt was the appropriate measure. Uh, you may indeed be correct, and South Korea may be indeed correct, that North Korea has continued additional activities against South Korea. I ask you, has North Korea done additional things against US entities and assets? Maybe not. Just because they haven't done it yet doesn't mean they've been effectively deterred. I don't know. This is a time will tell. Is there an effective deterrent? Very tough case, especially when you're pushed in the channel of cross-domain deterrence because the individual may not have as large of a glass house as you have. Your second question was about internet governance. Uh, that process is underway. Very strong proposals from the US Commerce Department, who has been the holder of that special contractual relationship with ICANN. 
There is a sincere and concerted effort on behalf of the United States government to transition those functions to a multi-stakeholder internationalized body, provided that it meets certain requirements that will ensure the continued functioning of the internet as we know it. Uh, to date, that is still being worked out through members of the international multi-stakeholder community to figure out exactly how and when that's going to happen. They are meeting in Marrakech this week. Ooh. Oh, what's the answer? <laughs> They're literally meeting in Marrakech, Morocco this week. Okay, so ICANN or Internet Governance Forum, go look it up and look up Marrakech. You'll find out what happened this week. Okay. Uh, working with individuals and businesses from a law enforcement police, totally feel your pain, sir, on how do you, through proper authorized law enforcement channels, know what's going on in your own country and help prevent some of this, and how do you do the information sharing? Our buzzword in the policy world on this is information sharing and public-private partnerships. Again, companies like hers are in dialogues with how and when it's appropriate. Some of them are in judicial discussions, for example, Microsoft and the Department of Justice in Ireland, or Apple and the Department of Justice and FBI currently. These are issues that are being collectively worked out. Uh, we certainly have some measures where you know, FISA court orders or subpoenas are enacted and enforced and information is shared. Uh, if you read your user agreements on your free email or other things, you will note that those companies retain the right to share information with governments as they see fit. So they may choose to consensually share. Um, and we also have legislation, both proposed and a recent one that's passed in the US, that gave very, very limited type of liability protection or encouraged information sharing for companies, but did not oblige it. So this is a debate that's happening both in the marketplace, in the courts, and in the US Congress, we have not yet resolved it. I confess I do not know exactly where the Pakistan legislation and work is, but I would suspect you all are trying to figure out what is the appropriate balance within your legal and judicial system. We're trying to work through it too. We haven't found, we're always trying to find that balance. So I appreciate your concern. You're probably experiencing a similar balancing effort that we are. We haven't solved it yet. Uh, 3,000, what if they don't all come at once? How many minutes apart do the military bullets have to shoot your soldiers, okay? That's a continuum, and what you lump together will be a policy decision. Uh, again, we keep coming back to some sense of subjectivity and some sense of policy decision. I'll leave you one thought on that, though. If the U.S. military or the U.S. government were going to do something, it is going to go through lawyer review. It's going to go through all kinds of rules. But if it were enacted, or imagine it coming the other way, if another country decided that they were authorized to do something and it happened to the US, would our attorney general go to that foreign country's lawyers and say, were you allowed to do that? Or would we make our own determination about whether or not they were allowed to do it? So one thing to think about, all these policy and judicial determinations the victim is usually going to think that they have sole authority to decide whether the line was crossed or not. Uh, I will say, and now I'm speaking in a personal mindset, uh, forcing people to do things they don't want to do is usually not the ideal path. 
it does happen. We do have law enforcement mechanisms. We do have subpoenas. Um, the public-private information sharing, the kind we were talking about with that gentleman, is probably going to be the most fruitful. And it's finding where the right balance is in your society under your constitutional and statutory provisions. Uh, I would say from situations I'm aware of, if you're going to try to force something out of someone, you will either get the bare minimum or you will get an effort for them to delegitimize or undermine your demand, challenging in court, for example. Uh, I think what you want to do instead is find mutual ways to pursue resilience and improve network defenses in your society and where you are in extreme situations where harm was still done to have a respectful and mutually trustworthy relationship. That's, of course, easier said than done. There's success in some cases. There's lack of success in some cases. And I hear regularly from the private sector that the government won't share enough information with them, that they don't trust the government after certain revelations, which may or might be true, but you have a trust deficit or you don't have that interest in cooperation. Uh, I hear the government occasionally responding in similar ways of, we can't help you if you're not willing to tell us what's happening on your networks when bad things are happening because we're not watching all your networks all the time. We don't have the law, legal authority to do that. No, we don't spend our day on Sony's networks watching until they tell us they have a problem, unless they've done something criminal, which they hadn't. Right? So it's a give and take. It's bi-directional. There has been improvement over time. I don't think where we're at where either side wants to be. Where we get, again, is going to be a policy balance. Any comment from the private sector side? Okay, then never mind. She ran a panel on this exact topic at the International Norms Conference today. That's why I'm inviting her to. smaller market shares. And so that's kind of an interesting and quite important distinction because my organization and others who operate like it, we want to stay on the defensive line only and we want to be really clear about that. Whether it's technical collaboration, operational collaboration, or even strategic, we think all of that is important and we want to do it with parity across the government organization. Um, and to Sean's point, I think you know, there have been really good examples of public private partnerships and then other ones that are just and it varies a lot by sector. Financial sector, which is heavily regulated, has traditionally spoken a lot within and amongst itself, and a lot with law enforcement. Uh, some other sectors are less well organized themselves and may or may not be more reticent to communicate with government entities. Uh, with that, I'll say thank you very much to all of you for your attention. I, I've had a great time. I hope this has been interesting. Thank you.